everybody, Tyler Smith here with another More Than One Lesson mini-sode. Once again, I do not know the number of this one because we're recording it pretty far in advance. So we are going to be talking about, by we I mean myself and my co-host Josh Long. Hi everyone. We're recording a lot of these in a row, so I kind of forget to introduce you sometimes. That's fine. Um, people know who you are. Well, everyone actually that's, that's, that's our No, everyone knows. Well, that's why your Twitter handle, handle is at the Josh Long. Exactly. So we're going to be talking about The Best Picture of 1966, Fred Zinneman's A Man for All Seasons, written by Robert Bolt, based on his play. Now, we have done a full episode about this movie, we, and it lasted at least an hour. Yeah. So we've talked at length about the spiritual elements and the, and the artistic elements of the film. So we'll be talking about that a little bit, um, and then we'll move on. Once again, this might wind up being a shorter episode, um, but we'll make that up when we get to... Uh, Gigi, <laughs> right? I don't know. I never saw it. Yeah. That one, best picture, right? Sure did. When, that year? won eight Academy Awards, nineteen fifty-eight. For a while, it was tied for the most. No, I guess for that year, it was tied for the most because the next year was fifty-nine and Ben Hur. Indeed, but, yes. um, yeah, that's too many for that movie. I've seen okay. that movie. I don't it's even. Not, I know nothing about it. Who directed it? <laughs> I don't know if I could tell you. Actually, I should look it okay. up. It's got uh, Maurice Chevalier singing "Thank Heaven for Little Girls," which is a oh, little creepy. Is that what that's from? It is. Oh, that's fun. My favorite. Without thing. them, what would little boys do? <laughs> what a horrible, See? What a horrible Isn't lyric. that weird? The only thing that I like about that song is there's a moment in one of the Pink Panther movies where uh, Clouseau is just, he's doing something else and he's like singing that song to himself. <laughs> and <laughs> Everything about that seems like a Peter Sellers choice, right? <laughs> that he just did on set and I'm they're sure. like, this sounds good to us. Uh, Vin- Vincent Minnelli directed uh, oh, okay. Gigi. So, so okay. Man for All Seasons, starring Paul Schofield, Wendy Hiller, Leo McKern, Robert Shaw, Orson Welles, John Hurt, Susanna York. Really great uh, a who's who of actors of, of that time. Um, and it is about Thomas More, who defied Henry VIII. And it is now... So, the la- so 1967, winner of Best Picture was In the Heat of the Night. Mm-hmm. 68 was Oliver, 69 was Midnight Cowboy. So since we're working backwards, we are now very firmly in standard best picture ca- uh, territory. Mm-hmm. As much as I love A Man for All Seasons, um, it's a period film based on a, on a successful play. Everybody's British. We're dealing with the King of England in some capacity. This will be the best picture. There's no question about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... I feel bad being cynical about that because I love the movie so much, but you know, the film won picture director, actor, adapted screenplay, cinematography and costume design. And then it was nominated for a couple of supporting uh, Oscars. So, you know, the, the Academy really embraced it. It's not, it's not an Epic, but it is very much, it's an actor's film. It's a writer's film and it's an art director's film, you know? Yeah. And they, they tend to embrace that. But I think, it is good in all of those ways. I think yeah. the script is wonderful. Um, as one would expect, it's based on a, on a play, a very talky play mm-hmm. um, that was very successful. Um, I think if it were about some, if it surrounded some kind of political issue or was more like cloying somehow, you would call it Oscar bait. Mm-hmm. But I think cause it's not those things. It's just all of the things that the Oscars like. But let me ask you this in 1966, and before, I mean, I guess you have stuff like Gentleman's Agreement, but for the most part, 
was that a was that an Oscar thing yet? Where Not, they they want their they want their best pictures to have a message, or is it just? spectacle and, and period stuff not to, i think not to the degree that it is now but i think that it existed a little bit like because okay. because there's always been the sense with the oscars that it should be something that's important okay yes and i think <coughs> if it were if it dealt with some sort of political issue that was uh, in fashion at the moment mm-hmm. then it would be i think it would be trying to court that thing okay but it's it's not trying to do that i don't think yeah, I and, don't think so. And um, it's it's just like you said it it is it's checking a lot of the boxes that the Oscar voters like and it I think it succeeds in all of them. So. Yeah, I think it's doing it with sincerity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ver- I'll say this, the fact that cuz Paul Schofield was not really known at the time. He was a stage actor. Yeah. And he played this part on stage. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that they chose to get the the actor from the stage play rather than a bigger star, I mean everything about it screams Richard Burton. Mm-hmm. Um but they chose to go with, no, let's go with this guy that nobody knows and that can't possibly be a draw. <laughs> um, I think that speaks to the sincerity of, of Fred Zinneman in the studio yeah. to really, to fully realize this story yeah. and try to, and admittedly, uh, Paul Schofield is one of those actors that people don't talk about, probably because he was m- probably more of a stage actor than a, than a uh, film actor. Mm-hmm. He has such a unique on-screen presence that I just, I feel like there are very few actors that just ooze intelligence. And there's a reason that he plays Thomas More and that he's always the smartest guy on screen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if he's with a cardinal or he's, or, or uh, uh, archbishop or a king, whatever. He's the smartest guy in the room, which is probably, which probably gets him in trouble. But <laughs> uh, Paul Schofield, did you ever see Quiz Show? I forget. Yeah. Okay. So... When you watch that and you see Ray Fiennes, you think like, man, this is a smart guy. What family must he come from? Oh, Paul Schofield. Got it. No problem. <laughs> That's a guy that, that is a smart guy. Um, and he just has a way of delivering lines where the character is not only intelligent, but there is also a very specific kind of wit to him that isn't always likable. Yeah. There's something, it's one thing for him to be the smartest guy in the room. It's, all, it's another thing for him to know it. And yeah. I think he knows it. Yeah. Which is part of his downfall. And that's, uh, I like that that is an element of the character without it mm-hmm. being the most important element for this story. Yeah. I feel like that really gives him some depth that that's clearly something you can see in this character, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't really have direct effect on what happens yeah. to him and throughout the film. Yeah. But I think it, it again, it's just, it's a thing that Paul Schofield brings to the part that actually, because so much of Thomas More in this film could just be seen as perfect. Yeah. Just completely flawless. But the way he carries himself, you realize, yeah, he's just, he's a regular guy who has moments of pride and has moments of ambition. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know. And I think that's, even when it doesn't come, even when it doesn't come through in the script, I think it comes through in the performance and it humanizes that a character that is about as saintly as you can get if you play him a very specific way. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's the brilliance of Paul Schofield. So when he won... Best actor. I'm very happy about that. Uh, the other performances are great as well. There's this is one of the unsung and great performances by Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. Plays Cardinal Wolsey and plays him as astonishingly self-loathing. Mm-hmm. I mean, when's the last time you saw the film? Not that long ago. I'd say within the last four years, maybe. Okay. Uh, 
I mean, when people talk, uh, if people talk about the acting, they'll talk about Wendy Hiller, they'll talk about Paul Schofield, Robert Shaw. They don't talk enough about Orson Welles, who is such an embodiment of the corrupt church and a guy who it's the self-loathing and self-awareness of his character is palpable. If anybody, if any character actually might give Thomas More a run for his money, as far as intelligence, it might be Cardinal Wolsey, but his intelligence has manifested itself politically. Yeah. And he knows how the game is played and he's played it for so long that it's almost like there's a realization that, Oh, right. This was supposed to be about everything about my post was supposed to be about integrity yeah. and morality. Yeah, he knows that he's keeping himself alive, even if it means yeah. doing something that he knows is morally wrong and hurting the people that yeah. he, he hurting friends. Yeah. And then, and there's just such a wonderful, and the two of them going back and forth, you know, these two notable stage actors, admittedly Orson Welles had done quite a bit of uh, film work as well, but these two very notable stage actors, both of them well-versed in Shakespeare and just really just sinking their teeth into these lines. Uh, you know, you have Wolsey talking about uh, uh, the queen being barren as a brick <laughs> and, and then says, you know, he says, should would you have me pray for a miracle? And he says it with such incredulity. Yeah. And then more is like, there is precedent, your grace. <laughs> and it's just, and everything about it is just like, Hey, do you remember that we're, that we're actually Christian and that we believe certain things? Yeah. Um, so I love that performance. And then I also love Robert Shaw as yeah. Henry the eighth. Yeah. And a very specific type of Henry the eighth that we don't see very often. Mm. We, th we think of the fat, um, a very specific kind of corrupt, uh, Henry the eighth. And this is the one, this is when he's in the process of being corrupted and yeah. getting what he wants and is just, but is vibrant and yeah. full of life. He's loud and gregarious. And that, I feel like that's interesting. I like that aspect of that character because it kind of reminds us something about the Royal family, which is just that if they're born into the family, then they're one of them and yeah. they are, they grow up as landed gentry who get whatever they want and it creates a certain type of person. And Henry VIII is maybe yeah. one of the best examples of that kind of person. And so much of him, so much of that character is how people respond to him. You know, mm -hmm. like there's a scene, it's just, a, it's, it's a, it's a bit on the nose, but it works for me because of the force of Robert Shaw, but also the actors around him where they're on a boat and they're headed to go see Thomas More, And then the boat, you know, comes ashore and then the king jumps off and, oh, he lands right in the mud. But he doesn't like fall on his butt or anything like that. He just lands and it gets on his boots and stuff. And everyone is waiting to see like... They all freeze to see Is the like, king going to get angry about mud? Because if so, we're all dead. Uh, and then he just laughs, a big, goofy, silly laugh. Like a crazy person. Like a crazy person. Uh, and then, but that's the thing, everything about it, uh, and this goes to the writing as well, is when he's showing, he shows Thomas More, he's like, look, mud. Like, <laughs> this is a guy who does not encounter mud very often, <laughs> so much so that people are, are on pins and needles waiting to see if he's, <laughs> if he will react poorly to it. Uh, moments like that are, are, I think, what, what, what elevate uh, the film beyond just this very turgid, um, by the numbers period film. I, I feel like there's a lot of vibrance in those performances. Um, so, uh, so I think we'll, we'll go ahead and, and move on and talk about the other 1966 uh, best picture nominees. You have Alfie, 
the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, the Sand Pebbles, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I've seen two of those. Um, I've seen Alfie and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Oh, I've seen The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I haven't seen Alfie yet, so I don't know what what's it all about. <laughs> um, and The Sand Pebbles, is that is Stephen, Stephen Queen. Queen? Yeah. Is it a mill? Is he in the Navy or I something? I believe he's in, the, he's in the Navy. I can picture the cover. Yeah. That, and I've heard it's good. Yeah. Um, he was nominated for Best Actor for it, and uh, it's just one that has kind of... It was... It was it was on my list of movies to watch at some point, but it was kind of low on the list. And then other movies just got added above it. And it's mm. entirely possible. I will go my whole life without seeing it. <laughs> and I, I don't, I don't, yeah. I'm not comfortable saying that, but that is a possibility. Uh, the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. Is that good? I think it's funny. It's, it seems very strange to me that it would be nominated for best picture because it's a, it's a, it's kind of a silly comedy. It's like know? nominating it to mad, 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 mad world. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, which might have come out this year, 66? No, 63, I think. Okay. Um, but, uh, I mean, it, it's Norman Jewison who mm-hmm. the next year would, would, uh, do In the Heat of Night. Yeah. I love how some of these ones back, back then would just bounce back and forth between yeah. silly comedy and serious drama. Uh, it kind of, it's, it's sort of a strike against the auteur theory when you look at it that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it does, it, like, it's got, um, I wonder if that, if it uses that thing we were talking about earlier about feeling important mm-hmm. um, in that it deals with kind of cold war questions and saying the Russians aren't such a terrible thing to be afraid of, or sorry, they're not a such a terrible thing that we need to be afraid of. Let me ask you this, given what I know about the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. Uh, would it exist if Dr. Strangelove hadn't been made? Um, Maybe. I think it's a very different type of movie. It's definitely right. not... It doesn't have the satirical bite that Dr. Strangelove does at all. I guess just like making light of something. Now, that one's very much about nuclear warfare, but this is about the Cold War in general and just mm-hmm. making light of that. Yeah. And getting and having apparently the Oscar pedigree to it. I mean, it might be some kind of uh, s- like answer to, to Dr. Strangelove in such a way to be like, it's not so bad. Like we're not all on the verge of destruction. Like stop worrying. Love yeah. The bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Um, but it's got a great cast too. It's got Carl Reiner, Alan Arkin, Jonathan Winters, like a lot of great comedy actors yeah. and they're doing, they're doing good work in it. I always love Alan Arkin. I can't, I can think of one movie that I don't like that he's in. Uh, and I still like his performance in it, which is, um, the Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Hmm. For which he was nominated, I believe. Yeah. I can think of a movie that he's in that I don't care for, and it is the movie that he won an Oscar for, which is <laughs> Little Miss Sunshine. I don't hate that movie. Oh, um, boy. When's the last time you saw it? It has been a while. It, yeah. it might not age well. Yeah. I feel like that's... It's well, not we one probably I'm, talked about it many, like a year ago. But it, It's not one I'm excited to return to necessarily. Yeah. But I will say I still like him in that movie a lot. Yeah. He might be my favorite part of that movie. Yeah. Still didn't deserve to win that Oscar over Jackie Earl Haley. That I 100% I agree with that. Yeah. That's a Jackie Earl Haley was a, that's a fantastic performance. Come on, fellas. What, what are we talking about here? Um, so, okay. Uh, now, as much as I love a man for all seasons, and I think I might like it in a thematic way. And I love, and I love, I love that movie. I love everything about it. I think I love Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf more. I can see that. Like that, 
that's the movie that more speaks to the cultural moment that we've been talking about during yeah. the 60s. Um, it's, uh, well, it's Mike Nichols again. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it uh, probably has more, mm, I was going to say it has more depth to the characters. Do you think that's right? It has more characters with more depth, maybe. It's hard, it's hard that's, to say. That's it's, not intended to be a pun either. Right. Um, <laughs> It's it's hard to say. Uh, I think we are allowed because these are characters that are just getting drunker and drunker and talking more, and because they're only talking about relationships. Whereas so much about a man, a uh, man for all seasons, there's intrigue and political talk and and faith talk and all this, and 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 character depth comes through in those moments. Whereas mm-hmm. this, it's people just talking about themselves, yeah. about their relationships. So it's a lot more on its sleeve. Yeah. And I think the characters are flawed in a way that is so much more horrendous. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think it's just a very different kind of character depth. Totally. And it's funny that they are both very obviously uh, theater adaptations. No question. Um, but two very different types. And, you know, and that's the thing, uh, I said, when I said that, um, that, uh, Thomas Moore had, uh, Richard Burton all over him. Um, yeah, I forgot. I I didn't say that knowing that I was about to be talking about who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And when you look at his performance and which, which I love and who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, that performance could have been shifted very easily to a man for all seasons. Just a guy who's very intelligent uh, a little bit sad and can just, and can be just withering in what, in the stuff that he says, mm-hmm. um, without the same moral backbone. Indeed. <laughs> um, although at some point we're probably, we're going to be talking about Beckett, which is a film that I love. Have you, mm-hmm. have you ever seen it? I haven't. No. Ah, marvelous. Um, so yeah, so of the best picture nominee and I saw Alfie, it's good. That one is very much of, a, of its time. And that is also, that's definitely one back when we were talking about, uh, uh, Midnight Cowboy, Alfie is definitely one that explores the sexual liberation and, th- and then comes to the conclusion of, Oh shoot. You know, that, that's the, that idea of what's it all about. It's the mm-hmm. la- it's, it's, there's the song that comes from it, but there, it's the last line of the film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, if you don't have peace of mind, you don't have nothing. And so what's it all about? And mm-hmm. just, and this is a guy who is unlike Joe Buck in Midnight Cowboy. This guy is very successful with the ladies and is just doing all kinds of stuff. And then finds that, Oh, I am a, uh, I'm a very shallow person. Mm-hmm. And I guess that is what this breeds. And so it's a very, that's a very interesting film that seems like a fun romp and winds up not being, mm-hmm. um, so uh, so looking at other notable 1966 releases, um, you have Andre Rublev, The Battle of Algiers, Chimes at Midnight, Fahrenheit, 451, The Fortune Cookie, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Torn Curtain, uh, and then a number of others. As we go back further and further, the list of notable movies from that year will get shorter and shorter based on what I've heard of. Oh. <laughs> um, probably because just... You know, if you were to ask me the notable movies from last year, it's so recent that I don't have the perspective, which means movies that probably aren't that important in the long run are still fresh in my mind. Whereas every movie I just listed, either culturally or in the world of film lovers, is still very much in the forefront. Yeah. Um, In 50 years, I feel like no one's going to be talking about the big short unless it wins Best Picture. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Do you think they'll be talking? They might talk about Spotlight in the same way they talk about all the president's men. Yeah. Um. Although it might that far 
that far away from now, it might pale in comparison to all the president's men. Yeah. And there's, and there is a, it leads to a question and it's, I'd, I'd love to do an episode about this some, at some point, just going like year by year and trying to figure out in 50 years, will there be any films from this year that people talk about mm. this year? I feel like there's a handful, including Mad Max. I think Mad Max is one. Yeah. Um, but I don't think there's many. I don't think there, there are a lot of movies that I love. I think this is a really great year, but it's, it's all movies. I mean, some people would say Carol, I think it's a very good movie. I don't, I don't think of it in that way. Um, and then as far, yeah, I, I don't really, I don't really think so. Last year, I can't think of a lot either. Um, the year before, maybe like her or something like that. Yeah. But anyway, um, okay. So we can, we can move on. Um, so looking at these other 66 releases, you've got the good and the bad for me, the ones that I love, I really like battle of Algiers. Mm -hmm. Um, I love, love, love chimes at midnight, which is about to get a criterion release this year. And I'm so happy. I've been (laughs) waiting for 15 years for this thing. Um, and then, uh, the good, the bad and the, and the ugly is, this is tough to talk about what I would pick for best picture. Yeah. Cause I love a man for all seasons. I love who's afraid of Virginia Wolf chimes at midnight, good and the bad and the ugly. My preference of all of them is probably chimes at midnight. Yeah. But if I'm, if I'm ta- if I'm thinking in terms of maybe like just quality of film, maybe accessibility of film and also maybe just let's go ahead and say, cultural impact which is not necessarily what they were thinking in those at the time um i'd probably say the good the bad and the ugly um yeah i don't know your thoughts i i think i would generally say uh the good the bad and the ugly although i remembered uh and i just looked it up to double check uh 1966 is the year persona came out also oh yes and some some idiots like that you know <laughs> some like the ones that really want to show that they're oh look i'm really smart i can't really explain this thing is it those but ones i think that i think that's oh, okay the, you know those people sound like a lot of fun absolutely i'm joking but listeners josh loves persona it's his favorite movie of all time actually that's not true <laughs> it's not it's but it, i don't think it even made it made it into your top 10 it probably was what? in my top 10 because i'm sure a bergman one would have gone in there and if it was if i was going to pick one it would be that one i think i think it was seven seal i think it went was seven it? seal it would be between those two yeah um but, um, but yeah persona is a really great movie that's yeah that's a film that i really love and I think it'd be between that and good, the bad and the ugly from, for me. I haven't seen chimes at midnight. That might be a mm. film that I would love. Um, what a wonderful film, but, uh, yeah, this is a good year now that I'm looking at these. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of great acting, a lot of great filmmaking, great writing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's between a lot of these. So what I'll go ahead and say listeners is go see a man for all seasons. See who's afraid of Virginia Wolf. See battle of Algiers. See chimes at midnight see the good, the men, the ugly. And then I'm not saying in this order persona is a film. I have a hard time recommending. I feel like a person has to be a very specific type of person or a very specific type of film lover in order to appreciate it. Yeah, I think so because it's, I mean, it's definitely an art film in many ways that would be, uh, um, make it inaccessible for a lot of people, which I, I totally understand. I um, seem I seem to recall uh, once you were describe you were describing persona to me once and and I I had a it was a joke response admittedly um, but you had said you said you know the film is basically you know why am I me and not you and I remember I think I said like I don't have the energy for this <laughs> you know because I just am how about that K 
can't that, can it just be that? Um, and uh, we both laughed, and, I, and then I was like, eh, I kind of actually believe that. Um, but uh, no, Persona is, is a marvelous film. But mm. and there there's a surprising amount of, of sexual content that I think uh, people might be. Yeah, not that there's like a lot of nudity, but there's like very frank and I'd say in there, depth sec- sexual discussion. There's one monologue that's very explicit. Yeah, and granted, it's a monologue, but still, it's you know, yeah, that can be. Hey, uh, gets the job done. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that could be upsetting for some people. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but yeah, if you're if you're not bothered by that kind of thing, or at least if you're ready for that kind of thing, I'd say that's the only thing that that and just the odd, the the strange type of movie that it is. Yeah, um, it's it's un- like we talked about. We've talked recently about uncomfortable films. It definitely has a lot of that sure. because there's there's uh, it starts exploring all these questions of identity and and begins to feel. Uh, less stable as you go through mm-hmm. it. And uh, anytime the movie sort of plays with the sense of what you expect is normal all the time and, and say like, what if it's not Yeah, uh, kind of like the way, like a David Lynch might, um, that sure. creates an uncomfortable tone that I think. Do uh, you, do you, do you associate this with Mulholland drive? I think Mulholland drive is definitely influenced by this yeah. one. Um, the, the, the two women, the kind of like, Mahal Drive does a very literal switching identities yeah. thing, yeah. Um, so I, th- I I think there has to be a, a connection there, um, which may be one of the reasons that I enjoy Mahal Drive. I don't know, and maybe one of the reasons why when I first saw it I did not. I've only seen it once. It, just in my mind, I've come to appreciate it more. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I should probably watch it again, and I think I'd probably embrace it quite a bit. Um, I. I saw it at a time in my life when I was not open to like experimental film. Like I saw last, last year at Marion Bad, a film that in retrospect I think is amazing. And at the time I just found infuriating. Yeah. And unfortunately there's a lot of those films, especially if you're not, if you don't know exactly what you're getting into, mm-hmm. uh, that, that can turn you off a whole lot. And I almost want to caution people against like, if you're seeing it just because it's on a list, you, you may watch it and hate it. Yeah. Um, I feel like you need some kind of context. Like I, my experience with Mulholland drives is somebody told me about it in a way, like it described the movie in depth of the story of it, talking about how stupid it was and how much they hated it. Hmm. And I was like, okay. And then I saw it and I was like, there are a lot of things that are really effective in it, but I don't really understand what's going on. I'm not really enjoying it. And then I read some of the stuff that Roger Ebert had to say about it. And just the whole idea, which had escaped me, which I'm almost embarrassed about (laughs) that, uh, it's a, it's very surrealist and a lot of it's meant to be thought of in terms of dreams and dreaming. Yeah. And when you watch it again with that in mind, it's like, this is fascinating. It's, when you look at it with that in mind, it's almost a perfect oh, yeah. uh, represent, representation of a dream. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like where to the it's point- going along. It's like the story is developing. Sudden shift. Yeah. I mean, like how I, many times have you had to tell, explain, explained a dream to someone and said, and then all of a sudden we were here and yeah. this was happening. And that's, that's the way it goes. Yeah. Like I had, I had a zombie dream where I was in a tank, uh, and there were zombies all around me. I was like, I'm feeling pretty good. I don't think they're going to get me. And then I kept getting out of the tank for some reason. I'm like, why am I doing this? And then it's hard. Again, it's hard to explain this except in film terms. It's like, so we ke- I keep getting out of the tank and endangering myself. And it's like, no, get back in the tank. These things are going to tear you apart. And then like pull back to reveal that I'm actually watching something on TV and I'm playing a video game and I keep pushing the wrong button. <laughs> and that's why I'm getting out of the tank. 
So I go from being tremendously terrified in the moment of these zombies are going to get me. Why do I keep doing the wrong thing to pulling back and feeling 100% safe? Mm -hmm. That's like literally the reality is shown to be a complete fabrication in the reality of the dream. It's insane. (laughs) And to, and along those lines and comical, that yeah. that reveal yeah. is comical, and that is Mulholland Drive. Mm-hmm. How are we talking about Mulholland Drive <laughs> in a discussion? Best of picture of nineteen sixty six. But um, hey, that's the way movies work, you know. Um, so yeah, uh, man. Uh, a lot of the movies that we've mentioned, feel free to write them all down and go see them. They're really great. Yeah. I feel like we've given enough warning with Persona. I feel almost bad saying warning, but you know. We provided context. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And that's like, like we were saying earlier, I feel like that's another one of those movies that you need to go into with a little bit of context, maybe read a little bit about it. I think it's better if it's not the first Bergman film you see. Wild Strawberries is probably the first Bergman film I would recommend to somebody. I feel like Seven Seal is probably a pretty good. It's pretty accessible too, but I feel like Wild Strawberries is is easy because there's not even that much, like there's political stuff going on in Seven Seal and, and kind of bigger religious ideas too, which I think are a little more complicated. And having seen, um, Having seen uh, The Virgin Spring, I feel like that one works That's, pretty well. That too. one does too, yeah, definitely. Um, and just watch uh, Last House on the Left. <laughs> <laughs> you, you'll get it. Any Bergman you'll movies. get it. Um, Max Lansky does uh, in that one too, right? He sure is, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Reprising his role. Yeah, he's, he whips out the chainsaw. Um, <laughs> but, uh, oh, and then a quick warning about Chimes at Midnight. It is a Shakespearean adaptation of several plays uh, put together in, in one film. So just be ready for that. If you're, if you have a hard time with Shakespeare, that that's yeah. it. And it would definitely help to have some Shakespeare context and to know like yeah. who the character of Falstaff is. Yeah. Oh man. And you haven't seen it, right? No, I haven't. Oh, and I've read most of the plays in which Falstaff appears. So I, yeah. I, I think I'll be very interested in it to say the least. It's such an interesting thing where, um, so Orson Welles, when he was doing plays on Broadway, very young, he was fascinated with the character of Falstaff. He put, he, he took, this character who is often a supporting character in other Shakespearean plays, put all of those scenes together as though, and then made him the lead and then cut a lot of stuff here and there. Um, and turned it into like a three, three or four hour movie, uh, play called four, uh, five Kings. Hmm. Uh, and it was viewed as just a complete wreck of a, of hmm. a play, but you know, that was, and then like 40 years later, <laughs> he makes chimes at midnight. It, so clearly it was a thing that was just, stayed with him and yeah. that passion comes through it might be the best Orson Welles performance of all really? time that's cool and I don't say that lightly because I love him as Kane I yeah. love him in Touch of Evil um, I love him and in Third Man, Man for All Seasons and Man for All Seasons so anyway um, okay so we've talked about a lot of movies go and see him go see Man for All Seasons great movie winner best picture 1966 the next one we'll be talking about is hey I think the hills are alive with, <laughs> with the sound of Alfie wait oh. I've, I've mixed up my mm-hmm. movies um, what's it all about music <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it. Thanks. Bye.